Thank you, Jonathan, and choir. Good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you here this morning and all of our guests, as I know that uh, Kevin has already. But we just want to thank you for being with us today. I do want to remind you what we are about temporarily on Sunday mornings. I know I sound maybe a bit like a broken record. But for the sake of our guests who may be here for the first time and uh, they would be coming and expecting just a normal or typical sermon format at this point in the worship service. And we've taken a short amount of time to do something otherwise. Um, some time ago I was going to teach a small group discipleship class on the great doctrines of our faith and I was asked by a number of people uh, to please not do that simply in a small group but would I entertain the option of doing that on a Sunday morning and hitting the whole congregation with a doctrinal study because it is it's very important that we know what we believe and why we believe it uh, with a number of young people and new Christians and also believers from, from some other traditions. Folks just thought it would be beneficial if I would sort of blanket the whole congregation. And so that's what we've been doing for a period of time. We've looked at the doctrine of revelation, general revelation, how God reveals himself in, in the created order. 
uh, and there's enough of God revealed in the created order sufficient to condemn, not sufficient to save. To save, we need special revelation, and God's given us that in His written word and His living word. We've looked at the doctrine of Scripture, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, that it is fully reliable without error. We've looked at the doctrine of God. Last time we met, we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity. This morning, we're going to look at the very important doctrine of the person and work of Christ. This morning, we'll concentrate just on the person of Christ. And next time, we'll look at the work of Christ. So you should have in your hand uh, a handout. If you don't have a handout, whether you're in this room or in the chapel next door, if you would raise your hand so our ushers can find you because you are going to need that. There's one right here, two, two more right here. Any others that do not have the handout? A number over here. Thank you, ushers. Any more up, up top? Can't see up there with the lights. Any up there? Did I see one raise your hand there? And also, let me mention to those watching online, here again, as I've pointed out, if you'll go to our church website, uh, pbcweb.org, and on that homepage, there's a, a box there near the top to, uh, to click on online worship services. And uh, when the online worship segment comes up underneath that is a little square a pdf box uh, this goes for all of the past lessons i've done if you'll click on that pdf a pdf box the study guide will come up also not just the study guide but the full complete manuscript of the lesson will also come up and so uh, you can go on that anytime and then today, those watching live, the study guide will come up. And then after it's posted tomorrow, the full manuscript will come up as well. So I hope that covers some of the, the upfront stuff I need to go over. I can't think of anything more important that we would be about as a church than looking at the person of Jesus Christ. I want to read once again that passage that Kevin read for us a moment ago out of Colossians 1. If you want to find Colossians 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 and then find Hebrews chapter 1 as well. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, says, He is speaking here of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then over in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews beginning in verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for this time that we have to look at what your word says about the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. 
Lord, we know that the scripture says one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, we know that it is through Christ that we can know you, that we are reconciled to you and have peace with you only through Christ. And he is our high priest that represents us before your throne of grace. And so, Father, it is appropriate that we worship him and bow in submission to him and follow him. Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, that when we could not save ourselves through keeping the law or keeping good works, that you did what we can't do. You sent your Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That our names might be written in your book of life. So, Lord, help us. Give us minds to think today about what your word says about Jesus. We know that in Christianity, it's not just simply about touching the heart and the emotions, but also the mind. Paul says in Romans 12, too, that we are to be transformed in our thinking. We are to be renewed in our minds. Because as the Bible says elsewhere, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Help us to think properly because it matters what we believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The proper terminology to use when when we speak of the doctrine of Christ and we look specifically at the person and work of Christ, the proper terminology to use is what? Christology. Christology. Now, to show you how important and essential this section is, I want you to listen to one of your own Southern Baptist theologians who taught at one of our seminaries in the early part of the 20th century, Dr. Frank Stagg. I just want to read a little bit from his theology of the New Testament, uh, and then we'll move on. He says, the New Testament is from first to last about Jesus Christ. He is the one alone indispensable to its concern. Every other person in the New Testament has importance only in relationship to Jesus. For or against him, friend or foe. He is the unmistakable center to the total event which the New Testament describes. God has acted in self-revelation and in redemption, and this divine event is centered in one alone. God, who in many measures and in many matters of old did speak to the fathers and the prophets, has in these last days spoken in his Son. And so the New Testament is chiefly about a person. It is about an event at the center of which is Jesus Christ. It is about the creation of a community of persons through an event at the center of which is a person, Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has acted and spoken, but more is to be said. In Jesus Christ, God has come. He is the Word incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The New Testament ascribes ultimate significance to Jesus of Nazareth, one born of woman, yet one who was before Abraham. Christianity does not go back simply to an early community of disciples. It is rooted in Jesus of Nazareth. The redemptive activity of God came to its ultimate expression in Jesus, and the church is His creation. Amen? Very important words to remember. Now, I want us to look first of all this morning just simply at an introduction to the person of Christ. Dr. W.H. Griffith uh, Thomas, he was an Episcopal or an Anglican priest at one time, very highly respected. He wrote a book entitled 
Christianity is Christ. I mean, you, take, you try to take Christ out of Christianity and you don't even have, you have something else. And so that title sums up the heart and the uniqueness of Christianity. Paul Little wrote a wonderful little book. Probably some of you own it. It's a little paperback. Know what you believe and why. Paul Little once said, Buddha is not essential to the teaching of Buddhism or Muhammad to Islam. But everything about Christianity is determined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christianity owes its life and character in every detail to Christ. And again, Dr. Frank Stagg wrote, The New Testament is from first to last about Jesus Christ. He is the one alone indispensable to its concern. Every other person in the New Testament has importance only in relation to Jesus. We read that a moment ago. In Christ, what has happened? God has come near. He is the Word incarnate. Remember what John says in John chapter 1 verse 14? The Word became flesh and did what? Tabernacled among us. And then in verse 18, John goes on to say that Jesus has come to fully exegete or expound the Father to us. So He is Emmanuel, God with us. No wonder that Jesus once asked his disciples, Who do men say that I am? Folks, that is the most central and important question of our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? And remember what they said, oh, some, of, some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then what did Jesus say to them? But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. What we do with Christ determines everything. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Folks, I want you to think about that. The Bible is so fearless and bold to claim that everyone outside of Christ is lost. You say, Pastor, are you saying that millions of people on planet earth who don't know Jesus Christ are lost? That's exactly what I'm saying. And that's why we go to them in Christian missions. That's why Jesus said, go therefore into all the world making disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We go because men and women without Christ are estranged from God and they are lost. It's through Christ that we're saved. Now, to, to review Stagg's words, let me summarize again. The Gospels are the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 1.1 says so. Every Gospel proclaims the same, that the Gospel is all about Jesus. He is the good news. And to know Christ is to know or to have eternal life. John 1, 1 through 4 says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, that is before what John is communicating there, before time as we know it even began, Christ was already there with the Father, existing from eternity past. Never a time that He was not. Outside of the Gospels, the book of Acts says that it is the accounting of what Jesus continued to do. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I judge to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For the writer of Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the final and complete way that God speaks. Revelation 1.1 says that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so again, he's what 
Christianity is all about. In fact, he's the central figure of all of Scripture. Everything before Christ in the Bible is working up to him. All the sacrifices, all the festivals, all the laws, everything that we find in the Old Testament is looking forward to that day God provides the ultimate sacrifice who will once and for all take away the sin of the world. Secondly, this morning, I want want us to think about Jesus' testimony to himself and the witness of Scripture. Jesus' testimony to himself and the witness of Scripture. Let's think, first of all, about his deity. Occasionally, you'll hear somebody make a foolish statement. They'll say something like, you Christians assign to Jesus Godhood. And Jesus never made those claims. Well, he certainly did make those claims. He claimed deity for himself in a a way that was very clear to those who heard him. He said on one occasion, I and the Father are one. And folks, even his enemies understood his claims. And they considered it blasphemy and that led to his crucifixion. The scripture says the Jews insisted we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Yes, Jesus did claim to be God. He also claimed prerogatives and authority that belong only to God. He said in Mark chapter 2 that he had the authority to forgive sins. Something that only God has the power and authority to do. He said in Mark fourteen sixty two that he would come in the clouds of heaven sitting at the right hand of power. He said in John 5:22, "The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son." And then several times Jesus asserted that he himself had the authority and the power to raise the dead. Jesus possessed attributes which belong to God alone. He possessed attributes which belonged to God alone. He claimed omnipotence in the Great Commission. What did he say there? He said, all power in heaven and on earth is mine. Think of that. All power in both heaven and earth is mine. Go therefore. On one occasion, he demonstrated his power over nature by calming the storm. Remember what the disciples said in exclamation when he did that? When, when they woke him up and said, don't you care that we're about to perish? And he calmed the storm. You remember what they, what they wondered in their hearts? They said, who is this? In John chapter 2, he changed water to wine. In Mark 3.10, he demonstrated that he has power over disease. In Luke 4.35, he showed that he has power over the spirit world of demons. He demonstrated power over death itself in raising Lazarus from the dead. And in Ephesians 1.20-22, Paul stated that Jesus has power over all the heavenly hosts. And so Jesus possessed attributes which belonged to God alone. Jesus is omniscient. He knew as only God can know what was in men's minds even before they spoke. He's omnipresent. He promised to be with his disciples to the end of the ages. Christ accepted the worship of men which is due to God and God alone. Worship only God. And yet Christ accepted the worship of men. He commended Thomas. Rather than rebuking Thomas when Thomas said, My Lord and my God. And this is the same Jesus who told Satan, the scripture says, Worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. 
And so he acknowledged that only God is to be worshipped, and yet he accepted the worship of men. So did Jesus clearly understand that he was God the Son? Absolutely. Another dimension of Christ's deity to be kept in mind is his pre-existence. He didn't become the Son of God either at his birth or sometime during his life. He was and is the eternal Son, co-existent and co-equal with the Father. Again in John 1, 1 through 4, when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And in the Greek there, it literally means, in, in essence, in just kind of modern slang, he was, he was eyeball to eyeball with God, communicating what? Equal status. How could that be said? Because he's God, God the Son. When the Jews challenged Jesus about his age, remember what he said? Before Abraham was, I am. And then in John's gospel, John concentrates on these miracles that Christ did. Calls them simeons. They pointed to something else. In other words, the people weren't just to chase after the miracle in and of itself. They were to look beyond the miracle at the one doing it. And, and he was doing miracles that they believed that only God could do. And so if Jesus is doing miracles that only God can do, then who must he be? He must be God. That's the conclusion they were supposed to come to. But sadly, many just chased after the miracles. Or because he fed them, they filled their stomachs. And so again, Jesus very clearly knew that he was God. The New Testament proclaims the deity of Christ in so many places. I mean, it would, it would take a long time this morning to even just go one by one through all those places in the New Testament. Well, what about his humanity? Because he's not just fully God, he's also fully man. And we'll talk about that in a moment in something theologians call the hypostatic union. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Jesus had a human body and a human mind. Scripture says he grew and he increased in wisdom. Though his conception was supernatural, his birth was like that of a normal child, of a human mother. The Bible says in Luke 2.40 that he grew and then in Luke 2.52 that he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with both God and men. And so in his humanity he went through a learning process as other children do and he got hungry and he got thirsty and he became weary from traveling. On the cross what did he say that demonstrated humanity? He said, I thirst. If he were not fully man, he, he could not have represented us on the cross. And he could not have been our high priest who comforts and makes intercession for us. I want you to listen to Dr. Wayne Gruden a minute. Jesus had to be fully human to serve as our perfectly obedient representative. His representative obedience as a man is in contrast to Adam's representative disobedience. Paul says in Romans 5 that as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. It's Romans 5.19. If Jesus wasn't fully human... His obedience in our place would be meaningless. End of quote. Now just as Jesus had to be human to live in our place, He also had to be human to die in our place. This was necessary because of our humanity. Uh, as Hebrews 2.17 tells us, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
Now, in addition to all this, Jesus' humanity as well as his deity allows him to serve as the one mediator between God and man. As Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5. And as Hebrews points out, because he was like us in our humanity and yet without sin, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and help those who were being tempted. Folks, it ought to be great comfort to us knowing that Christ has walked in our shoes and experienced our trials and tribulations, our hardships in life, yet without sin. And so what's that mean? When I go before God in prayer, I have a high priest in Jesus Christ who fully understands my weaknesses and my temptations. Now, today we hold that neither nature of Christ should be emphasized at the expense of the other. Neither nature, neither his full deity or full humanity should be emphasized at the expense of the other. Again, I, I gave you that big word a moment ago. Theologians refer to the, the full deity and full humanity of Christ being what union? The hypostatic union which means that which affirms that the scripture plainly shows us that Jesus had two natures in one essence two natures in one essence actually the turning of those pages is music to my ears it means you're actually following along with me Let's talk thirdly about the virgin birth of, of Jesus Christ. Scripture clearly asserts that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. Now next to the resurrection, this, this might be the most attacked area of the life of Christ. Some have attacked it and tried to say that it's only mentioned twice in the Bible. Matthew 1 and Luke 1. So it must not be all that important. Well folks, that's, that's absolutely foolish reasoning. Especially if you affirm the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible. If you believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. That is that it's all inspired. Every word. Then... To mention something even one time is enough. And the fact of the matter is God has spoken on this issue. In, in Isaiah 7.14 it talks about that the virgin would be with child and you shall name him Emmanuel. That is God with us. Now as some want to point out the Hebrew word used there is the word Alma. As we would write it in English A-L-M-A-H. And some skeptics would try to say the Hebrew word Alma can simply refer to a young woman of marriable age. And they would say it doesn't have to mean virgin. Well, in certain contexts, they're right. Alma can refer to a young woman of marriable age. In other contexts, it's very clear that it refers to a virgin. And it's actually remarkable that this is the word Isaiah used. Because the prophecy would have had a close-up fulfillment to Ahaz. And it would have had a distant fulfillment in Jesus. And so the word Alma that Isaiah used would fit both criteria. And then there are times when Alma needs no further conditions placed on it to indicate that virgin is meant. There's another word, betula. betula. Hebrew's kind of guttural, guttural language. If, if I said it properly, I'd have to kind of spit on those on the front row. You know, 
kind of talk from the throat a little bit. But anyway, betula. But at times, that word needs further indication that virgin is meant. And so my point is, Alma seems to be exactly the right word used. And then on top of that, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament writers writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they quoted Isaiah 7.14, and what did they say about Jesus? That he was born of a virgin. That ought to settle the issue once and for all. If an apostle writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that that referred to a virgin giving birth, that ought to settle the issue. It's also interesting that in Genesis 3.15 we're told that the victorious offspring that will crush the head of the serpent will be the seed of the woman. Now consistently in Genesis, such as Genesis 5, genealogies list the man, the father. And yet Genesis 3.15 speaks of the seed of the woman. That's fascinating when you think about it. By omitting any relationship to Adam, God suggests that the promised offspring will not partake of Adam's sin. As the first Adam was created by God, so likewise the second Adam, Christ, was created by God. Not by a human male. The virgin birth also allows for the pre-existence of the divine person and nature. The eternal Son of God existed before the miraculous conception in Mary's womb. Now folks, without a virgin conception of Jesus, there can be no guarantee of his sinlessness. You see, the descendants of Adam are sinners... Because Adam sinned. And the descendants of Adam died. And so had Jesus only been the product of a union of Mary and Joseph, he would have shared our same fate. I want you to listen to what Wayne Gruden says about this. I just want to read just a short paragraph on what he says about the virgin birth. The virgin birth made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means God used to send his son into the world as a man. If we think for a moment of other possible ways in which Christ might have come to the earth, none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity in one person. It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and send him to descend from heaven to earth without the benefit of any human parent. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are, nor would he be a part of the human race that physically descended from Adam. On the other hand, it probably would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents both a father and a mother. And with his full divine nature miraculously united to his human nature at some point early in his life. But then it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God since his origin was like ours in every way. When we think of these two other possibilities, it helps us to understand how God in his wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that his full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of his ordinary human birth from a human mother and his full deity would be evident from the fact of his conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. I think that says it well. But there's one more thing I want you to think of here. What, what do we believe Luke was by trade? A physician. 
Okay? And Luke indicates in Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1 that he had carefully researched everything in great detail before he wrote Luke Acts. You know, Luke was such a careful historian that even today, Bible scholars are amazed at his accuracy as a historian. Again, think though about him being a physician. And it's in Luke's gospel is one of the primary places indicated that Jesus was born of a virgin. As a physician who'd researched everything, that, that would have been something that he wouldn't have understood in human terms as a physician. And yet he wrote it proclaiming its truth. Now, let's talk next. I want you to screw your thinking caps on a minute. Every so often I have you do this. We dive a little deeper, and you're not going to be tested on this. You know, if you had been in my college theology class, you would have had to known all this by heart, but I'll let you off. You'll have these notes to kind of help you through this. But, but some of the way, in, in the first 400 years of the church, what you need to understand is how much the person and the nature of Jesus Christ was attacked. The first 400 years of the church was a period where like heretics were coming out of the woodwork. And if you were the enemy, if you were Satan attacking attacking Christianity, what would you attack? Certainly the nature of Christ would be one of the things you would attack, right? Just like you'd attack the resurrection. And that's what we see in the first 400 years of the church. How much the, the nature of Christ was attacked. And so they, they hammered out more clearly the Orthodox Christians what they believed the Bible was actually teaching about the person and work of Christ. But some of, the, some of the erroneous views were Ebionism. Ebionism. And I'm going to show you in a minute how this actually applies to probably some people that you bump into today. Now, this heresy insisted on the humanity of Christ to the exclusion of his deity. The proponents of Ebionism denied the pre-existence of Christ. Jesus to the Ebionites was a great man, a prophet of God, and one who is endowed with the Spirit of God and exalted to kingship after his death. Some of them accepted Jesus' miraculous conception, but others rejected it. Now, by the 5th century A.D., this viewpoint had left the church. But today, will you still run into this? Yes. This would be the view of Jesus that many in Islam, for example, would have of Jesus. And not just those in Islam, but probably a lot of people that you would run into. That might say Jesus was a good man, even a prophet, but they would deny his full deity, that he was actually the Son of God. So would you run into that one today? Yeah. The next one, Gnosticism. There's a lot of your New Testament that you're not going to understand the background of it if you don't understand a little bit about Gnosticism. It was very complex and there were different forms of it. I would encourage you to research Gnosticism a little bit so you can understand what some of the New Testament writers were battling against. Gnosticism was one of the main heresies that the early church had to battle. And they would deny that Jesus came in the flesh. That's why John in writing 1 John, how does he begin 1 John? He wants his audience to know, listen, we, 
We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. I mean, he was real. We heard him. We walked with him. We fellowshiped with him. John emphasizes that in 1 John 1, 1 through 4 to emphasize that Jesus was real. He wasn't just a phantom. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't just a spirit without a body. In fact, John's going to go on in 1 John to say if anybody denies that Jesus came in the flesh, he's of the spirit of Antichrist. So Gnosticism. It, uh, it was a Greek idea, Greek philosophy that incorporated some Christian elements in it. Some Christian elements, some Persian elements, some Judaism elements, and then mystery religions kind of all rolled into one. Now, Gnosticism's main tenet echoed Plato, who said that all matter is evil and spirit is good. And so under Gnosticism, if all matter is evil, the Gnostics would have said, how could Jesus have been matter? How could he have been flesh if he was the Son of God? Because matter is evil. In Gnosticism, they believed that a series of emanations or spirit beings had come out of God. Think of God as just some kind of big cosmic spirit or something. And all these spirit things come out of him in a long descending chain reaching down to the earth. And, and you get to the one that actually touches the earth and they'd say, that was Jesus. And so some of the Gnostics said that Christ was either a phantom or he seemed to appear in a body. Or that at his baptism, the man Jesus had the Christ come upon him. And then on the cross, as the man Jesus was dying, the Christ lifted off of him and left. Salvation to the Gnostics was limited to those who had this special wisdom or knowledge or gnosis. Now again, you can see how dangerous this is. Because in the culture of that time, Greek culture had, had influenced the biblical world a great deal, just as the Roman culture had. And, and the Greeks were known as great thinkers with great universities and great philosophers. And, and, and here they were saying that all matter is evil. And, and so you, you can see how many in the culture would have, would have bought into this heresy. One branch of them, docetism, the next blank on your form. The, the, the docetists derived their name from the Greek term dokeo, meaning seem or appear. To the docetists, material existence is evil, which was the view of Plato. Therefore, it was impossible for the Holy Son of God to take on himself flesh. And so they believed Jesus just appeared as an illusion. Again, one of the main heresies that the early church had to confront. Arianism. Here's one you'll run in today too. Arianism arose out of the teachings of Arius. He was an elder in the church at Alexandria, Egypt. He viewed Christ as a created being. He said he might have been the first and the most important creation of God, but he was still just a created being. Christ was not eternal in the view of Arian. And he was not of the same substance as God, but rather only a similar substance. And so Christ was placed somewhere in between a scale between God and man, Christ was somewhere in between. 
Who would be people today you would meet that would be carryovers of Aryan thought? They knock on your door on a Saturday morning probably. Who are they? Jehovah Witnesses who believe Jesus was only a created being, albeit maybe the most important created being, but still just a created being. So will you see this one today? Yes. And the Council of Nicaea and Constantinople responded to this heresy. And they affirm that Christ was God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Then there was Apollinarianism. Big words for you. This heresy denied the full humanity of Christ. They were named for Apollinarius who was a bishop in Laodicea. They believed that Christ possessed a real body and an immortal, sensitive soul, but they denied to him a truly human mind or rational soul. They believed that Christ was God masquerading around in human flesh. Here again, at early councils, that view was condemned. And then there's Nestorianism. Nestorianism. This is named after Nestorius. He attributed a dual personality to Christ. Two persons and two natures rather than one person and two natures. Now afterwards he insisted that he had been misunderstood and that he had always adhered Christ existing in two natures and one person. I've given you some other information there on him. I, I need to move on because there's some more practical stuff I want to get to. The last one I want to give you here is Eutychianism. Eutychus held that the deity and humanity of Christ were devoid of distinction. The two natures were fused together into a third nature that was neither God nor man, but something in between. Here again, at a church council, Chalcedon, that view was condemned. I think I gave you the statement out of Chalcedon in A.D. 451, the orthodox view of Christ. Let me say that nobody even today has probably improved on this statement any. I gave you that in your notes, didn't I? Okay. Read that. Fantastic. And if you've got the ESV study Bible, which I know many of you in here do, uh, on page 2519, 2519, it's going to give this same statement and then it's going to break down for you some of the important points of the Chalcedonian statement and why it's so meaningful for us today. Now, let's look at implications for the deity of Christ. What are some implications? Let's close out on a more practical level. You can, you can loosen up that thinking cap a little bit, okay? What's the implications of the deity of Christ? God can be known definitely and personally in Christ. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So God can be known definitely and personally in Christ. A second implication. Redemption is possible and has been accomplished in Christ. 
as Millard Erickson, again, one of our Baptist theologians, right. It was not an angel or a human who came from God to the human race, but God himself crossed the chasm created by sin. A third implication. In Christ risen, ascended, and enthroned, we have a sympathetic high priest who has omnipotent power to meet our needs. And then a last implication I want to give you here. Worship of and obedience to Christ are appropriate and necessary. Worship of and obedience to are appropriate and necessary. Now what's some implications of the humanity of Christ? First of all, Jesus was human and yet he did not sin. The fact that he became man reveals the nature of true humanity. His humanity gives a glimpse of what our humanity would be if it were not tainted with sin. He shows that the problem with humanity is not that we are humans, but rather that we are fallen. Jesus' human nature shows the potential of humanity as God intended humanity to be. Because again, who's Christ? The second Adam. The first Adam sinned. He's fallen. And all of those in Adam are fallen. Christ is the second Adam who did not fall, did not sin. A second implication, Jesus' humanity enables his representative obedience for us. His representative obedience for us. What theologians would call his active obedience. That in all things pertaining to the law and God's standards, Jesus obeyed them completely, fully, without any shortcoming. Third implication, because of Jesus' humanity, he can be truly a substitutionary sacrifice for mankind. He died in your place, in my place, the just for the unjust. Theologians would refer to that as being his passive obedience. That he laid down his life in death. Active obedience, he perfectly kept God's standards and laws. Passive obedience, he laid down his life and died for us. Fourth implication, Jesus' humanity makes him the only effective mediator between God and man. Because again, he's the God-man, fully God and fully man. Fifth, Jesus' humanity enabled him to become a sympathetic high priest who experientially understands the difficult plight of humanity in a fallen world. And then lastly, Jesus' humanity means that he is a true example and pattern for human character and conduct. Now folks, when we think about the person of Christ... What's the only appropriate response you and I should have? Worship of Him and to serve Him, to follow Him. He's Lord. He's the only one who is worthy of your life and your full obedience. He knows everything about you, He knows where you hurt. He knows what your needs are. He can be your sympathetic high priest and come alongside of you and give you a strength beyond anything you possess on your own. And most importantly, He's your Savior who died for you. Without taking 
your sin upon himself and dying in your stead and my stead, we would still be in our sin. And remember what the writer of Hebrews says, all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, they were not complete because they had to be redone over and over again, showing that they were not the final and complete sacrifice because if they were, they would have ceased. But they kept on and on and on until God sent His Son to be the final and complete sacrifice. That never has to be redone. What's that mean? Salvation is in Him and Him alone. And there doesn't need to be another Calvary. One was sufficient. What Jesus said from the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished. Everything that had to be done with sin. To reconcile you and me to the Heavenly Father, Christ accomplished it. Nothing needs to be added to that. And nothing needs to be redone. No wonder John the Baptist told his followers, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Christ there's salvation. In Christ there's a sympathetic high priest. Some of you this morning, there's not a doubt in my mind that there's somebody in here this morning who needs to come to Christ, trusting Him and Him alone for salvation. You're in church, but you know that you've never been born again. You've never trusted Christ and Christ alone. And you're still trying to do stuff that you can make yourself worthy to God. You can't. Trust Him and Him alone. And come to Him. And there's others that have problems in your life. You have trials and weaknesses. He understands. I'm not saying He's necessarily going to take that away. He may have that in your life for a time and a purpose. For lessons that you and I may not even understand for now. But He knows your need. And He can be your shepherd and your sympathetic high priest and your comforter and one who gives you strength. The scripture says we need to cast all of our burdens before Him because He cares for us. And folks, at Calvary's cross, He proved once and for all how much He cares for you. He died for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what Scripture teaches us about Jesus. Many doctrines that we could look at in the Scripture, none as important as the person and work of Christ. Lord, we thank you that he was your perfect solution to man's need. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we thank You for Your love. For doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. We do worship You. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. Enable us to faithfully follow you in our lives. In Christ's name we pray.